Now, when we talk about questions of purpose, meaning, we're really asking some very foundational questions about why we're ultimately here. What is the purpose? We're here. And when you talk about purpose, you're also assuming there's somewhere you're going. And of course, the challenge is if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And so very much we feel we are just simply drifting through life. and We are really struggling to answer these kinds of questions with any degree of real insight or understanding. And we have come to the conclusion that there are no answers maybe to these questions. And this is a phrase which is repeated by well-meaning teachers across the world. There are no answers to these questions. You know, what, what's your answer? Now, the trouble is, is that when you teach a generation that there is no answer to that question, eventually that generation has to ask itself, what's the purpose of asking the question? There's no purpose asking a question and losing sleep over a question to which there is no answer. So you stop asking the question. Now, the trouble is, is when you stop asking the question for a generation, you then forget what the questions are. So the hallmark of the culture of confusion in which we currently live isn't that we've lost sight of answers to questions we once had. We don't know what the question is anymore. We're not even sure what the questions that we should be asking ourselves are in order to wrestle with some of the most foundational and important things in our world, in our life. And of course, such a world eventually collapses with meaning. And we see it reflected, as we saw um, demonstrated to us last night, in suicide rates and everything else. We are, we are struggling. Now, if one thing maybe is more strong than anything else in this world, especially for our generation, is that we're just simply all here by chance. We didn't ask to come into this world. We weren't put into this world. There's no real purpose while we're here. We're just here. And it's very random, and there's no thought behind it. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read a book entitled The Diary of Antoine Roquentin. Um, it was written about 40, maybe more, 50 years ago. I'm getting older. And it tells the story of a young guy called Antoine Roquentin who is wrestling with the question, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose behind all of this? How do I understand this? And he's stuck. And as he's sitting, thinking about this question, he's looking at a chestnut tree. And as he looks at the chestnut tree, he suddenly feels, he has this moment of like enlightenment. There's an epiphany. He suddenly realizes what's going on. And he writes in this diary, I had suddenly realized I discovered the key to existence itself. So here's this guy struggling with the question, why am I here, looking at a chestnut tree, and as he looks at the tree, he feels he's got the key to existence itself. Do you want to hear what it is? Well, here's what he wrote. He wrote that the world of explanation and reason is not the world of existence. What does he mean by that? He's saying there are two different worlds. There's one world over here which only exists in my mind. It only exists in my head. It's a world in which there is meaning, justice, purpose, a world in which the question why is answered. And that world with meaning, reason, justice and so on, that exists in my head. Then over here you have a totally separate world where things just are. A world of trees and rocks and buildings and things. And in this world, in the real world, there is no why. There is no justice. There is no meaning. There are no reasons. Nothing. And what he concludes is that the world that exists only in his head, this inner longing he has for meaning, purpose, reason, justice, morality, ethics, is trying to impose itself on the real world of things. And they don't fit. And that's what's wrong. He's looking for something and trying to impose on reality something that isn't there. And so now he's faced with a choice. The comfortable world of the imagination and fantasy 
where you can talk about meaning, purpose, truth, justice, faith, God, and it makes you feel good and things make sense because there's such a thing as meaning. Do you want to live in that world, that little fantasy world? Or do you want to live in the real world where there are no explanations? There is no why, there's only what. But that's the real world and it may not be comfortable to live in, but it's the real one. A very famous British existentialist very famously talked about this dilemma and he talked about the one-eyed king. And he says, you know, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed um, uh, king, one-eyed man is king. And we, we sometimes misunderstand the illustration he gave. What he was saying was this. He said, supposing you live in a world where everyone's blind, they can't see what really is. And they think there's meaning, purpose, reason, hope in this world. But they're happy. And they can't see. And actually, you only have one eye. And even in the one eye you have, you can't see that well. But you can see enough to realize that they're all wrong. And there's this real world and things just are. What do you do? Do you burst the bubble? Do you come to all the people who think they can see but can't? Do you burst their bubble? And it goes pop. And you take away all of these false things. You know, all of this meaning and purpose and morality. Do you, do you destroy that? Knowing it will make them unhappy. Or do you let them live in their little fantasy world? Because it will keep them happy. Even though you can see the way things really are. What, what do you do? And as Antoine Roquentin is looking at this tree, and he feels that this is the problem, this is the fundamental problem for every human being, he begins to feel sick. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally ill. Sick to the pit of his stomach. That is why when that book was translated out of French and published in English for the very first time, the publisher gave it a new one-word title, Nausea, by Jean-Paul Sartre. Because that one word summed up everything that seemed to be going in that book. Now, we live, therefore, and we now struggle in this world where we're asking questions about meaning. And some of those questions are obviously being driven by, if you like, our scientific understanding. Well, that's just the way things are. And I don't want to say too much about that. Not because it's not important, but I'm sure you've had people address that in this context. Well, things just are, and there are, no question why. Now, there's a good reason why in science we don't do teleology in science, is that historically, whenever we've thought that way, we've gone into all kinds of serious errors. But it's one thing to say that science isn't very good at asking the question why, answering the question why. That's one thing to say science doesn't answer that question well. It's a totally different thing to say the question can't be answered at all. Those aren't the same things. But we see this in every aspect of life. We can even see it in the way we do history today. A couple of many, several years ago, I was invited to a wedding and I was sat at the table where I knew no one else, which basically means you are the least important person at the wedding. I'm sure you've had this experience. Um, you know, there are some weddings, you're important, you're up near the top, and other rooms where you're sat with a group of totally random people and you have no idea who they are. So I was at the totally random table, so I'm just making conversation and I start talking to the guy opposite me. I say, what do you do? He said, I, I'm a, I teach history. He taught history at Cambridge. I said, really, you, you teach history? Well, what kind of history do you teach? He said, I teach postmodern Spanish history. I said, well, what's that? <laughs> and he said, well, Michael, what you need to understand is actually there's no, really no such thing as history. When you read a history book, the history book tells you more about the historian than it tells you what took place. The historian imposes his meaning, their interpretation on the facts. The facts don't interpret themselves. So really, all history is is whatever the historian wants it to be. The historian makes it up and imposes their meaning, their story. And so therefore, there is no such thing as history. History is whatever the historian wants it to be. And I looked at the guy and I said, this is an amazing idea. Is this an examined course at the university? And he sat back in his chair and he said, well, it used to be, but students wrote whatever they wanted to in the exam. 
Well, I said, well, isn't that consistent with what you're teaching them? Now, of course, I understand what he's saying because he actually has a legitimate concern. This is actually one of the reasons why prophecy is so important for the Christian. Prophecy doesn't simply tell you what will happen before it happens. It helps explain why it will happen before it happens. So with the fulfillment and the prophecy in the life of Jesus Christ, you don't have to sit around saying, what does this mean? You have to recognize a chain of events, the interpretation of which has already been given, which is a very, very important thing. But of course, if there is such a thing as prophecy, then maybe there is actually a guidance in this world. Maybe someone is leading this and it's all going somewhere. In which case, intrinsic meaning isn't incidental to this world. It's intrinsic in this world. It's built in. It's locked in from the very beginning. There is a direction and a purpose behind all of this, which informs where we're going. However, there is a bigger reason why I think we actually struggle with meaning. And it is connected with this question of integrity. You see, it's one thing to believe that maybe our life does have purpose and it does have direction. It's one thing to think, well, there is a way that I should live and I'm expected to live. But it's a totally different thing then to try and live it. And that's where we find things now very, very difficult. A couple of um, uh, years ago, I, I got invited to speak at a, a large accountancy firm. And... Um, they wanted me to speak on why integrity matters in business. And as I was doing the preparation to give this, these series of talks for them, I thought, I think I'm going to get online and I'm going to watch the ethics lectures given by the top 10 ethics departments in the world. Because now many universities, they put you know, various lectures online for you to see. And I thought, I'll sit back and, and watch them and see what they have to say. It was an interesting experience. One of the professors there from one of the world's most famous universities who was doing a series on business ethics, he was talking to a group of university students and he said something which I felt was was very controversial. Now, the only reason he got away with it is I think that we've stopped thinking about these questions for so long, we don't think about them deeply enough. Otherwise, he couldn't have got away with what he said. Now, the reason we've got away with about ethics is for a while we thought that ethics is entirely optional. We don't need it. When I used to first tell people that I used to teach business ethics, which I did do for a short while at, at Oxford, people used to laugh at me and say, what a waste of time. Now, people don't laugh quite so much anymore when you talk about business ethics because we're living with the consequences of when it collapses. Now, the reason why the professor was able to get away with what he said is because we haven't been thinking deeply enough. We haven't been thinking, as I said, because we think ethics is optional. So let me just put one thing in here, because it is very important to understand. Ethics is not optional. Our ethics governs everything in this world. Everything. Every relationship you have is governed by ethics. Your friends are people who you can trust. Those are your friends. If they betray that trust, they cease to be your friends. Every relationship we have, every friendship, every marriage, every business partnership, partnership is ruled and governed by ethics. In business, it's not that we don't do ethics with people we can't trust. It's just that we demand in business a higher rate of return to justify the increased investment risk in that business transaction if we feel they're not trustworthy on the other side. So we make these things all the time. As a matter of fact, there isn't an organization in the world that doesn't have morality at its center. Let me say that again. There isn't a single organization in the world that doesn't have morality at its center. It's impossible. If you don't believe me, join the mafia. And after you've joined the mafia, you try lying to them, stealing from them, cheating them, betraying them, or taking something from them that they think is theirs. You will discover they have a very highly developed sense of right and wrong, and their compliance department is unlike anything else you've ever encountered <laughs> in this world. The question is not, is ethics and morality at the center of our organizations? The question is, how big a circle do we draw? In the mafia, you draw the circle around the family. Within the family, your moral and ethical commitments are absolute. And if you cross them, you can die. 
But outside of the circle, you can do whatever you want. The question isn't, is there a center part to our moral and ethical life in our organization? The question is, how big a circle do we draw? Do we draw it just around ourselves? Or maybe just around our team? Or around our department? Or around our hospital? Or around the system? Or around the nation? Or around the world? The question isn't, are these things central? The question is, how big a circle have we drawn? You may work for the most unethical boss in the world, but I can promise you if, you if you betray them, they're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. How big a circle have you drawn in your world? Now, let's just come back. Because we've totally failed to understand how central ethics is, we've stopped thinking about it, which is why this professor, as I said, could get away with his controversial statement. What was his controversial statement? Well, this guy was speaking to a group of postgraduate students at one of the world's most most elite and uh, capable universities. And as he spoke, here's the statement he said that made me really sit up in my chair and go, wow. He said, it has been scientifically proved that human beings are basically good. When you put be human beings under pressure to compromise, they will always choose the right thing. And all the students sat there nodding and writing it in their book. And I sat there with huge eyes thinking, I can't believe even the body language I'm looking at in this video. It's unbelievable. Now, when I was speaking in Canary Wharf a couple of, um, um, about a couple of years ago to this large accountancy firm, and I told this story and gave this, that's what I'd seen, everyone in the room fell about laughing. And they all stood there shaking their heads. And I said, let me tell you what I think is actually much more accurate. I said, most people I know want to do the right thing in life. Most people I know, most human beings, they have a desire to do good. And when they first go into their professional world and when they first go into their career, they, they dream of being admired and respected because of the way they conduct themselves. We dream about, because of the way I live, because of the way I do my business, because of the way I go about handling myself, people will look up to me and we want to be admired and respected because of the kind of nobility with which we live. But here's the problem. As we go through life, we find ourselves making more and more compromises, more and more cuts. It feels like that far from having an integrated life, we have a split existence where I'm one thing in one world, another thing in another world, another thing in another world, and our life feels far from integrated. So I'm one thing in my business life, one thing in my family, maybe possibly even a different thing in my church. My life feels far from being integrated. I said, I think that's something which is far more common. And then as I spoke to these accountants, I said, as a matter of fact, one ancient thinker put it like this. He said... I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it's no longer myself who's doing it, but there is some sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And I said to them, this to me seems much more realistic, and they all nodded. In the Q&A, someone said, that's one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. Which philosopher wrote that? <laughs> Another guy chimed in and said, as a matter of fact, he says, it's this wet. Can, can you buy it somewhere? And then a third guy said, can, can you not only buy it, but has someone written a commentary on it to help us really understand it more deeply? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is available for sale. It's quite uh, accessible to you. And you're going to find it in a book called Romans chapter 7. This is a far more realistic 
understanding. You see, because meaninglessness in this world, lack of purpose, doesn't just simply come in believing that the world is inherently meaningless, although that logically follows. Even if you think there is meaning and purpose in this world, what on earth do you do when you find yourself consistently failing? What do you do when you feel like you should be living one way, but you're actually living another way? How do you deal with that? It is that moral frustration that leads to so many people concluding that maybe their life is pointless after all. They're trying to be one thing, but they can't, and falling constantly as they go all the way through. And what we see revealed here in Scripture is beautifully put. We have the desire to do it. We actually dream of leading a noble life. We want to. Well, our problem is we can't do it. And the very things that we look at and think, well, I shouldn't be doing that, somehow we seem to keep repeating it. We're locked in. And this is a far more penetrating of the human heart and the human soul than than anything else that you're going to read in the world. And it raises this question, therefore, point blank. Integrity is very important in life. When it collapses, everything collapses around us. Which is why Paul will go on to say, who will rescue me from this body of death? Literally, I feel the sentence of death in my heart. This feels hopeless. Imagine being set a hopeless task. Even the ancient Greeks could understand this when they had one of their gods rolling a stone almost the way to the top of the hill and then it would come all the way back down again. And he repeated the cycle over and over and over again. The question is, doesn't it cease to be meaningful at some point? Why just keep going through the loop? And so some of us, even in this room, we feel we're at the point of giving up. It just feels too hard. And then this is when we have to realize something really quite remarkable, which is, although we need integrity in our life to keep keep and maintain that sense of purpose, there's an even bigger question that we have to ask that we often don't stop because we've forgotten what the questions are. You see, it's one thing to say that integrity is important and central to this world. It is totally something else to answer the question, what do I do when integrity fails? And we all have to be able to answer that question. If you can't answer that question when integrity fails, you're going to have huge problems. Whenever integrity fails, it doesn't matter if you're talking about your personal life, your family life, your corporate life, your national life. When integrity fails, there are three other questions you need to be able to answer. And we're going to look at those just just very briefly. But even as we raise those questions, there's this deeper thing that we have. What Romans 7 is telling us in a very insightful way is that the problem we have is within. Now, we all know, and I'm sure you've heard it said many times, this world would be so much easier if there were bad people and good people and we could separate the two out and just get rid of all the bad ones. If only that were possible. But that's just not what the human heart looks like. My eldest daughter, she's now 18, but by the time she was 14, she'd grown her hair all the way down to below the small of her back. So she had very, very long hair. And I was going away on an overseas trip, and um, she came to me and she says, Dad, when I get home, you you better be prepared for a shock because I'm going to have my hair cut much shorter. Mm, Okay. Anyway, I knew something was going to be drastic when I landed at Heathrow Airport, and I hadn't even got home. I was still in the car going back home, and my wife rang me, and she said, Michael, when you come home, you are to say nothing to Lucy, apart from the fact that she looks beautiful. (laughs) So I knock on the door, and she opens the door, and there's Lucy, and her hair's been cut up to here. And so I'm a man under authority and do what I told. So I smile and I say, sweetheart, you look beautiful. Now, two days later, my eldest daughter and I were on the TV. We're on the, sorry, on the TV. <laughs> we're on the couch watching the TV together. 
And uh, my wife is out. Uh, my, my wife, Anne, she leads a cello section in an orchestra in Oxford, in uh, one of her hobbies. And she was out at an re orchestral rehearsal. So now I'm alone with Lucy, and I finally have the opportunity to ask her the question I've been dying to ask for at least 48 hours. <coughs> so I, I smile, you know, because I, I want to be, make sure it comes out the right way. Yeah, happy face. And then I, I think about my breathing for a little bit, so just slowly in and out. So it's, <laughs> so it's calm, so there's no, like, you know, hidden something coming across in my voice that could cause a problem. And as casually as I can, I turn to her and I say, so, Lucy, what, what, what inspired this change of hairstyle? <laughs> I said, were you bored? Did you want something new? Was it, just a, was it a change of fashion? And she said, well, she said, I saw this documentary on TV a couple of weeks ago about this charity, and they look after young girls, six and seven, who have leukemia. And they were saying how they struggled to have enough hair to make wigs for these girls as they lost their hair through the treatment. So she had a hairdresser friend come round to the house and plait her hair in a certain way and tie it off. And she had her hair cut off and she put it in an envelope and mailed it off to this charity so that they could make wigs for some of these girls. And my eldest daughter, Lucy, is an avid reader. She's been reading, she started, she started reading, read, of, read most of Jane Austen by the time she was eight years old. I'll never forget when she came to my mother, my, my mother, my wife. Don't tell Anne I made that mistake. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be in so much trouble. Um, and she came to my wife, Anne, and, and, and she said, Mummy, what does the word gay mean? And my, my wife, Anne, sort of breathed deeply and explained about heterosexual relationships and homosexual relationships. And, and then after this long explanation, my eight-year-old daughter said, I, I don't think that's what Jane Austen meant. <laughs> anyway, Lucy, Lucy had... She was an avid, and she, one of the other books she's read is Little Women. And I don't know if you've read Little Women, but in that story, the heroine cuts off her hair and sells it in order to give her, money, her mother money to buy a train ticket so she can go and visit her father, who's dying thousands of miles away from home. And as the mother takes the money, she looks at her daughter, and she says, your hair will regrow, but you'll never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. And as Lucy told me this story, I said, sweetheart, do you remember the book Little Women? She said, yes. And I said, the only thing I can think to say to you is... Your hair will regrow, but you've never been more beautiful to me than you are right now. It seemed the only words I could use. The incredible thing when we talk about the fall of human beings is not that we see nothing in any heart, no aspiration for nobility or goodness. It's much more complicated than that. In that same heart that has so much desire for good, we also see greed and envy and malice and lust, and it's all mixed up together. That's our problem. And it, and it comes out. And so it's one thing. We can talk about integrity and demand integrity from people, but it can feel and sound tyrannical. It can even sound tyrannical to the point of a collapse of meaning. So we have to ask, well, what will I do when my integrity fails? Because it will. And at that point, there are three other questions that I said we have to answer. Is there anyone I can talk to? Is there any hope? And if there is, what's the process of redemption? It doesn't even matter if you're in the corporate world. If your integrity fails and you don't know who to talk to, you will bury your failure, and it could end up destroying your organization. I remember speaking years ago in South Africa when an accountancy firm called Arthur Anderson had collapsed two days before. And I was speaking to a group of CFOs and CEOs from some of the largest companies in the country, and they were all set sitting there with their arms folded and an expression on their face that said, impress me, which is always a very hard audience to connect with. And I started off to them by saying, if I had come here a week ago and told you that the world's, one of the world's largest, most aggressive, and highest paying in terms of its staff 
Accountancy firms would be wiped off the face of the planet in less than 48 hours because of an ethical failure of one of its employees. Would you have believed me? And every arm, set of arms unfolded. If you don't know who to talk to in your company or wherever you work when your integrity is compromised, you will bury it. But that burial can destroy you, it could destroy your family, it could destroy your company, it could even bring down a whole country. We then need to know, is there any process for hope? Is there any way out of this mess in which I now find myself? Because if there is no hope, then the, and the whole thing is hopeless, then we may as well just multiply the offence and see how long away we can get away with it. Which is why so often we set ourselves on self-destructive patterns of behaviour. We've given up trying, so there's no point even now trying to make the effort. And we will literally destroy ourselves, just thinking, well, what's the point of trying to rescue it? And even if there is hope, we need to understand how that process of redemption is grounded. How, what process of redemption is there available for me to get myself out of this colossal hole I'm in? Now, we're in a Christian context here, not a non-Christian context. I hope you can understand how even in a non-Christian setting in an accountancy firm with 147,500 employees, you can get from there to the cross of Christ. If you can't get from there to the cross of Christ and you're an evangelist, you need to give up and do something else. <laughs> the amazing thing within the Christian gospel is there is someone we can talk to. As a matter of fact, he already knows what we've done before we decided to tell him. He's not sitting there and we're going to go and tell him something and he's going to be utterly shocked and surprised. He's waiting for us to come and admit and own what it is that we've done. Not, not for his sake, but for ours. We often find that first step nigh on impossible. We hate admitting and owning what we've done, which is why we so rarely apologise properly. Uh, in my experience, I've noticed that most husbands around the world make an expertise out of this particular error. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, we tend to say something like, I'm sorry if I hurt you. That's not an apology, that's a statement of regret. That means... I've just said something that I wish I hadn't said or done, and now I can see you're upset, and my life has just got a bit more complicated. <laughs> and I'm really sorry that my life is now more complicated, because I liked it when it wasn't. <laughs> so I really am feeling sorry that I hurt you. It's not, it's not an apology, it's a statement of regret. It's about, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself. A genuine apology doesn't have the second part to it. It just says, I'm sorry. When you say, I'm sorry, you're saying two things. Number one, I was wrong. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm not trying to explain it. I was wrong. And implicit, secondly, in that word sorry, is a promise that you want things to be different, that you will go differently. We call it repentance. When we come before God and say, I'm sorry, and we own what we've done, we're also at the same time saying, this has to look different. And then this brings us into the second quote, is there any hope? And this is now one of the most incredible things, of course, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes into this world, and at the point of the cross, he gives himself to death. Jesus Christ takes our sin onto himself. He becomes sin for us. He becomes a curse for us. Literally, all of the consequences of our rebellion and all the penalty it deserves, all of that, he literally takes to himself. There is a process of redemption. He pays to set us free. Apolotrusis is the, is the Greek word. It, it, it's a word which the, the Greeks would sometimes use in battle if one of their, if an important person was captured. They would start a process of negotiation in order to set the captive free. 
and what kind of price would have to be paid in order to secure it. And that whole process, the desire to set them free, the process of negotiation, what would have to be paid to bring about, they refer to as apolutrosis, redemption. And this is why we read in scripture phrases like, in him we have redemption through the purchase of his blood. He literally came and he paid the price for the hole we put ourselves in. It's the most incredible thing. The reason why a deep understanding of Christian redemption is really important is so often in this world, where we deal with our lack of integrity by apologizing enough to be forgiven what we're prepared to admit to. Let me explain what I mean by that. We've done something wrong. We're not going to confess 100% of what we've done, because if we tell them people 100% what we've done, we feel they're going to hate us. So we tell them just enough, 80%. Does that make sense? So that they, the person we're talking to is impressed and think, wow, well, thanks for coming to apologize to me. And we've admitted you know, a lot of it, but we just admitted some of the worst of it. You know, so they don't get too angry. And then they, they apologize. And now we feel we have peace, but it's a very uneasy peace, isn't it? Because what happens if the other party discovers the other 20% that we never admitted to? Then what happens? Well, the whole thing unravels. The incredible thing about the forgiveness that we're offered through the person of Jesus Christ is that his offer of forgiveness is not based on some misunderstanding of how guilty we are. He knows everything already. He sees the extent of it even before we're prepared to admit it to ourselves. And while we were still his enemies, it's later going to say, earlier it says in Romans, he was willing to give himself up for us. It's incredible. The source of redemption that we have for a new beginning in Christ is huge. It's unlike anything else in this world. It means that we don't have to collapse into a state of inner meaninglessness because of our moral failure. It means if we're prepared to admit our moral failure before God, we can actually be forgiven and restored through him. That's why Christian churches around the world make it a practice to celebrate communion regularly. Because it's as we come and take the bread and the wine, we remember the price that God paid in order to pay, bring about that redemption, which secures our hope, which means we can always talk to him. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. The more deeply you understand how much God has forgiven you, the stronger your desire will be to follow him more closely in the first place. God has given everything he has and held nothing back because he loved us and he wants to now bring us to him. And every time we come to the communion table, that's what we're celebrating. Every time we come to the communion table, we're remembering, Jesus, you gave your body for me. You were broken on the cross for me. Your blood was shed for me. And now I need to receive this afresh and renew. So as we finish our time here together, I'd ask each one of you to bring your hearts and your lives before God. This is a table of hope and celebration. It's a place where we realize that actually there is a fresh start and a new beginning with him. And it has to start with us saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I'm sorry for the mess I now see myself in. And it's when we receive what he has given to us. And so that's what we will be celebrating in a moment. And so we're now going to move and transition into a time where we can begin to respond to what we've heard. And there are going to be several points to our response. We're going to start with one of the greatest privileges that we actually have, which is by, by giving. In the Christian faith, we don't give to God in order to get something from him. We give to God because he's so freely given to us. Does that make sense? Out of the incredible way he's blessed us, we, we, we respond. We want to give to support, and you will have that opportunity in a moment.
And then we will respond again with worship and we will sing. And then we will come into the communion service itself. And as we go through that, at various points, there'll be opportunity to confess our sin, both publicly as we say some prayers together, and then also privately in the quietness of our heart. The word communion is really quite amazing. It doesn't simply mean to remember something. When the Greek it says we do this in remembrance of him, it also means to renew. It's a bit like you saying, I must remember Michael on his birthday, which in case you're wondering is June the 25th. <laughs> when you say I must remember Michael's birthday, you don't mean you're going to sit and think about me on June the 25th. It means you're going to renew a line of communication. You're going to send me a card, hopefully a present. And so when we do this in remembrance of him, that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about doing something now which will renew and bring us back into that relationship with him. Jesus, Paul, as he comes to the ends of this huge section, finishes with those incredible words. He says, although I want to do good, evil there is right with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin and death. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, as we now come into this service of time that we can enjoy together, Lord, we want to thank you that it is through Christ, Lord, that redemption comes. Lord, we thank you that you called us and you put us in this world for a reason and a purpose. None of us are here by chance or accident. You, we are here because you wanted us here. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that there is a meaning and a purpose and a reason why we're here. Lord, and we are sorry, Lord, for all the times we have failed, but even more importantly than that, Lord, we're sorry when we've given up trying because the failure just seems too great. Lord, we thank you that no price seemed too great to you and that you held nothing back and gave everything to us in your son. And Lord, we bring our hearts before you and Lord, we pray, Lord, that as we celebrate communion together and take it together, Lord, will you take us on a journey with you that we may leave this place closer to you and with our hand, Lord, help for put firmly in yours, Lord, that we may leave this place in a closer walk and a closer communion with you. In Christ's name, amen.